the People's Climate March will take place two days before President Obama and world leaders attend a climate summit at the UN. Climate change will bring more extreme weather, and action is now more urgent than ever. Millions of people around the world gather in the largest climate action march in history. The biggest gathering seeking to address climate change ever. 2,000 rallies in 162 countries from Paris, Melbourne, Australia, Rio de Janeiro. And activists are filling the streets to demand action on climate change. We are here because we are redefining this moment, this movement, this time. Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. Climate change, environmental pollution, privatisation of the biosphere, water crisis are all clear signs of the impact of neoliberal policies on our environment. But what are the political alternatives? I hope the leaders of the world listen. We're the first generation to feel the impacts of climate change and the last that can do anything about it. Time is running out. Our citizens keep marching. We cannot pretend we do not hear them. We have to answer the call. When I was a student in the 1980s, there seemed to be a disconnect between an ecology movement that had emerged in the 1960s and the traditional left. Neither readily embraced the other. Over the last two decades, there's been a rediscovery of a strand in Marx and Engels' writings that relates to the environment, which has led to the growth of an eco-socialist movement that campaigns not just on issues of environmental concern, but also social justice. In this edition of Pod Academy, we explore what Marx and Engels had to say on the environment. I spoke to Chris Williams, adjunct professor at Pace University in the Department of Chemistry and Physical Sciences, and Gareth Dale, Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Brunel University. I began by asking Chris Williams, what was the reality of the disconnection between the environmental movement and socialist politics of the 1980s? There was a strand in Britain of what could be termed deep ecology, which was more commitment to um, protecting the earth and natural systems, saving the whale and forests and things like that and less of a concern with the social world or social justice questions, which was is obviously more of a traditionally left socialist kind of concern. But there was also another strand to um, environmental concerns in the 1980s in Britain anyway, which was CND and the campaign for nuclear disarmament and um, just the general kind of idea that the world was... Um, in a very bad situation with regards to the possibility of nuclear warfare and what did that mean in connection to nuclear power stations and nuclear power. And I think so. So there were, I think in, in Britain, my recollection is that uh, there were different strands, but um, certainly the, the left was somewhat disassociated from both in a certain regard, but certainly much more so from the idea that we should promote the natural world over and above any concerns for uh, the people in it, as if there was this big split between the two and we didn't depend on each other. And that was probably most evident in the United States with the rise of the ideas of uh, people associated with Earth First, which split off from 
what they thought were the sellouts of the, the mainstream environmental movement and um, turned kind of anti-human in many ways and uh, some sections of it embraced uh, HIV and AIDS as, as a way of cleansing the earth and depopulating it of a human virus and so on and other kind of despicable ideas like that. So um, there were different strands even within the deep ecology movement. Some of them were overtly racist. And so the left would obviously have condemned that anyway. Um, but the, the situation has definitely moved on considerably since then. When I began doing research for this podcast, I was surprised to discover that Marx and Engels themselves had a highly developed concept of the relationship between capitalism and the environment. And it's a theme that is explored in both Marx's Capital and some of Engels' later writings. In fact, to my mind, their thinking still seems remarkably contemporary and holistic. I asked Gareth Dale if this was a fair assessment. I think your surprise is related to the fact that um, the thought of Marx and Engels was for a long time interpreted in uh, very sort of orthodox ways by social democratic and communist parties in the um, in the, for, for most of the 20th centuries. And these were parties that were linked to very... Um, state-centred, modernising projects um, geared to economic growth and geared to urbanising society and to um, capital accumulation at the, at the end of the day, uh, whether that was in the form of uh, sort of state capitals in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe or in social democratic-run nation-states in, in Western Europe and elsewhere. And, and, and these were parties, therefore, that um, interpreted Marxism in a, in a very um, growth-oriented, modernising framework, which fetishised technology. Um, I recall I lived in East Germany, for example, for a couple of years, and I remember the children's textbooks would commonly feature great bulldozers rampaging around the world, um, tearing up forests um, so that sparkling new cities could be laid around the country. Uh, and yet in recent years, the ecology of Marx and Engels has been uncovered by a number of Marxologists, above all John Bellamy Foster, whose work on Marx's ecology really summarised the new interpretation. And uh, Foster notices the term used by Marx, um, the, the, the metabolism between humanity and nature has been riven. There's a rift between uh, uh, humanity and nature opening up uh, with capitalist development. That's, of course, not all there is to Marx and Engels. Their work is, is uh, you know, in, in enormous and there's a great deal of... Um, different angles that you can read into them. There's certainly, certainly Marx and Engels were, n were not what we might call deep greens. They were um, very influenced by the enlighten Enlightenment philosophy and um, the philosophy of the ancient Greeks. They, they conceived of human beings as a kind of needs-expanding species. They were um, very interested in human flourishing. They conceived of this in part in terms of uh, what they called the the productive forces, the ways that the ways in which human beings work the work upon nature, and in the process they develop the capa their capacities and they they produce goods and services in order to fulfil their needs and wants, which themselves are um, a in a process of expansion. In the course of that, they they an element of conceiving of 
human relations with nature in terms of mastery entered their thought. But it's essentially the mastery that you might use, the, t the same concept you might use when you speak of a, I don't know, a violinist playing the violin, somebody who masters the, the instrument. It's a process that requires a sense of the player and the instrument and the limits of each. The concept of metabolic rift, uncovered by John Bellamy Foster, is central to Marx and Engels' environmentalism. It reflects their keen interest in developments in scientific research of the 19th century, and this particular concept emerges from their interest in the work of the pioneer of organic chemistry, Justus von Liebig. What they were most concerned with, the, the, the crisis that emerged in the mid-1800s, centred around Britain, was the fertility of agriculture. And how were they going to maintain the fertility of the fields um, in Britain with an expanding population, one that needed to be fed so that it could in turn be fed into Blake stock satanic mills and make money for the emerging industrial capitalists. So um, there were all kinds of ideas about what was required by the uh, soil of the time. And uh, Justice von Liebig, who's a famous soil scientist, who's kind of the first person to really investigate what was being taken out of the soil by agriculture and whether it was being put it back in again, was uh, read, his work was read with great interest by Marx and Engels. And um, they recognized that what was happening was all the nutrients from the soil were basically being transported from the rural areas to the urban areas. And they regarded this as uh, a metabolic rift. In other words, um, it was a complete rupture in the natural cycles that eventually would have to be um, rethought. Uh, but capitalism was not capable of doing that and came up with other ideas about how to overcome the rift that it was creating, which was to go and ferment wars in South America to import guano after they ran out of digging up the bones of British and French soldiers who died in the Napoleonic Wars in France to spread on the fields. So workers could be exploited by capitalism, both dead and alive. Um, so that was the original uh, idea. And even the word metabolism was a, was a new word um, coming out of energy studies in the early 1800s. It was originally used, obviously, just to talk about individual cells or the metabolism of individual organisms. And the revolutionary idea that Karl Marx um, kind of exp expanded it to was to say that the whole of human society actually was in metabolism with nature. And, um, and so we needed to look at it as a set of inputs and outputs. And uh, how was there a balance in that if we were to maintain an ongoing relationship with nature, which at one point he writes about being uh, the body of humanity. What Marx and Engels recognise is that humankind and the social world are not separate from nature and the environment. It's this holistic view that science is returning to more and more. Uh, it's not just the organism, it's not just the environment, but it's been the interaction between those things. And um, so I think that that kind of more holistic understanding, which is coming into various branches of science more uh, recently, is um, still you know, a fairly new idea, and, um, but is something that certainly would be, have been very familiar to the ideas of Marx and Engels or to them when they were thinking about 
how do you focus on the processes that go on as opposed to just uh, Engels talks about modern science being only concerned with the death of things and not with their life and their interactivity. Although the rediscovery of Marxist thinking on the environment occurred only recently in the West, it was not lost to the scientists of early Soviet Russia. There is this fallacy that Lenin led directly to Stalin and it was all terrible almost very from, right from the beginning. But actually, when you look at the um, ecological policies of the early Soviet Union in the early 20s, even back through the Civil War, some of the first decrees that Lenin signed were on forests and on land, and not just about redistributing, but how do you make, um, or how do you regenerate um, forests and land that has been under industrial or agricultural use and bring it back to its former um, levels of biodiversity. So there were restrictions placed on all kinds of hunting uh, and um, various other agricultural activities by the early Soviet government as a way, uh, influenced by early ecologists, uh, Soviet ecologists. Um, one of them working in the agriculture department actually coined the term biosphere, uh, Vernadsky. And um, you could take a degree in ecology uh, by 1924 in Soviet universities, well ahead of what went on in the West. Um, there, were, there was an explosion of um, scientific investigations. Uh, large areas were set aside for no tourism or anything, just for scientific research to examine how to regenerate the land. And many people joined all kinds of what would be called environmental uh, preservation and conservation societies as people went out into nature and, and discovered nature for the sake of it. So there were a lot of uh, very kind of cutting edge and ahead of their time things that went on in the early Soviet Union, despite the horrendous um, economic uh, situation post-Civil War and post-Revolution. These early Soviet environmental projects were eventually wiped out by the rise of Stalinism and the pursuit of economic growth. Part of Gareth Dale's current research is an attempt to understand growth as an ideology, one that serves capital accumulation. What I'm talking about here really is um, what I call the growth paradigm, which is the idea that economic growth is something that is utterly normal and natural about human society, uh, is that it uh, has an economy which grows and that that growth is, is necessarily good, that it is linear, it will continue, uh, that it is potentially infinite, that it can, can continue forever, and that it is a sort of the first port of call if there are any um, social or economic problems, uh, we simply need to uh, increase the growth rate and that will uh, enable us to sort things out. It's I see it therefore as an ideology, something that is um, that essentially naturalizes social processes. So the economy and economic growth are uh, creations of human beings, and yet we almost come to think of them as, as something um, entirely natural, something that just happens, um, and that if it isn't happening, there is then the then the body politic or the body economic is somehow diseased and it needs to be brought back to health. The only healthy state is a is a state of economic economic growth. I see it ideologically as a kind of refiguration of capital accumulation. In other words, capital accumulation is the basic motor of uh, our world economy, 
Um, but it would be rather revealing if, or rather very honest, if politicians were to say that their goal was to seek to provide amenable conditions for the, the accumulation of more capital, because that sounds, A, very abstract, and B, um, explicitly in the interests of the owners of capital, the business people themselves, which is essentially at bottom how the economy works, but it would be uh, bad politics, to be so honest, and therefore growth, economic growth, has has come into being as the concept that politicians utilise to justify their actions in favour of capital. It appears to be uh, in everybody's interests. And then, of course, it is a subject that is uh, obviously of, of, of very immediate environmental concern because the more... Uh, the economy, the world economy grows, the more pollutants we throw out into the atmosphere, the more habitat is destroyed, the more species uh, are destroyed, the more plastic is turfed into the oceans, uh, and so on. Within the capitalist global economy, the focus on growth presents a problem for those seeking a solution to the world's environmental problems. How to have both economic growth whilst reducing the impact on the environment. I think the main challenge for environmentalism is to um, immunise itself against the, the new forms of hegemony of the growth paradigm. By that, I'll give you, to explain my point, perhaps it's easiest to give you an example. There is a lot of talk, um, particularly within the... Uh, international organizations such as the United Nations, the OECD, the World Bank, uh, and so on. But also in particular nation states such as South Korea and China and and the European Union. There's a lot of been a lot of talk of late and, and this looks set to continue of uh, a new green economy uh, and green growth. Um, this is to my mind um, dangerous wishful thinking, the idea is that uh, economic growth can be decoupled from uh, environmental impact so that, you know, GDP can carry on growing forever even as uh, humanities or society, human society's impact on the environment is, is progressively lessened. Um, I think that is uh, an impossibility, and yet it's it's allure. It's very seductive um, in that it appears to be able to uh, solve uh, the environmental problem on ter in the terms of the society in which we live, the world global capitalist society, which could um, the idea is could just reform itself along environmental lines, and to the extent that. Um, this represents a very seductive promise for the, the ec ecologically minded and environmentalists uh, in your terms. Uh, I think uh, inuring oneself against that is, um, is task number one. So is the whole notion of a green capitalism an oxymoron? Here's Chris Williams again. Even Paul Hawking, who believes in natural capitalism, he was the one who said it was, uh, if I'm not misquoting him, green capitalism is an oxymoron. And uh, because that's, uh, you know, even people like Tim Jackson, um, who've, who've written about sustainability without growth, have yet to explain how capitalism could exist without growth. I think that there is a, a, a lack of real understanding of what does capitalism do? 
why does it need to grow? Um, and because it's not all about consumers wanting to consume. It's about the production process itself and what capitalism does with its investment, you know, the money that it has to invest in um, future production because that's always what happens. And the idea of a weightless economy that was somewhat popular in the 1990s or this uh, kind of idea that technology would automatically lower the um, the need for new uh, material resources or new amounts of energy and we'd suddenly be um, decreasing our energy and natural resource use even though the economy was still expanding as shown to be has been shown to be a mirage so um, it is true that there has been that there has been some leveling off of resource use, but overall, it's going up everywhere. So um, uh, there's no evidence. I mean, show me some evidence that uh, in, would indicate that capitalism is able to change course. Uh, certainly under neoliberalism, uh, there's, there's going to be two solutions. The answer is either going to come from some technological silver bullet, bullet and innovation will take care of any problems that we may have, or... Um, we'll leave it to the market and market decisions will automatically lead to better results. So that's where, for example, cap and trade comes in with you know, adjustments to the market or it's where um, you know, some of the crazy ideas about um, seeding the oceans with iron or firing artillery shells full of sulfur, sulfates into the atmosphere come in or launching tens of thousands of mirrors into space to reflect the sun. These are all um, kind of bog-standard ideas straight out of the ideology of capitalism that handily leaves the system scot-free of any responsibility or any need to change. Um, because if we just allow it to continue, then it will find its own solution to the problem that was created by capitalism in the first place. One of the ways this neoliberal approach has manifested itself is in attempts to establish a carbon economy in which states, corporations and even individuals are allocated a certain amount of permissible carbon emissions, which can then be traded. Here's Gareth Dale again. I think this is, yeah, this is one of the ways in which um, we can we can see very vividly neoliberal policies and ideas shaping the agenda of humanity's relationship to the environment. One of the crucial ways in which we affect the environment is through the waste products, um, uh, including atmospheric pollution, carbon dioxide, methane, etc., nitrous oxide. Uh, this is potentially uh, setting the planet on the course of runaway global warming. Um, a, a climatological catastrophe is looming and so humanity faces the question of how to deal with its atmospheric pollution. And because we live in a, a neoliberal uh, phase of capitalism, we uh, capitalism essentially is dealing with this by, by, uh, by seeking to commodify our waste, atmospheric waste products uh, and, and turning uh, tons of produced carbon or even simply hypothetically produced carbon into uh, a commodity that can be bought and sold through carbon markets. Whilst the impact of a carbon economy is high on the agenda for those concerned with the current state of the environment, 
A recent report by the World Economic Forum identified water crises as the most serious global threat in terms of impact on businesses and society. I asked Chris Williams if struggles over the control and management of the water supply were a more tangible aspect of the impact of capitalism on the environment than perhaps the more difficult to grasp idea of climate change. One of the things that climate change is doing is uh, affecting water supply for any number of um, communities around the world. At the same time as that is going on, from, from a kind of physical science perspective, uh, there is the um, political science of what capitalism is doing to privatize water supplies. And so throughout the 1990s, and so that's what led, I think, to many of the struggles against water privatization, the most um, internationally successful and, and world-renowned of uh, the water wars successfully against uh, to reverse privatization of the water in, in Cochabamba in, in Bolivia. But um, there have also been massive struggles in South Africa, um, now, currently in Ireland, there are struggles around water. And um, because rivers are drying up, glaciers are melting, there are increasing problems with extreme weather events. Either there's too much water, and, and Britain is certainly suffering from this too, or there's not enough um, and uh, fresh water. So uh, I think that for sure there will be more and more struggles around water. I, I disagree with the idea that we're somehow running out of fresh water, although the fossil fuel corporations and other uh, petrochemical industries are doing their best to pollute what we have and agriculture to drain the rest, but uh, industrialized agriculture. But I think that uh, struggles will intensify around water, but around many other issues as well, because there are lots more uh, privatization of land, particularly in Africa. Uh, as well as struggles around individual pieces of infrastructure, for example, the KXL pipeline in the United States going across um, Native American land and creating all kinds of problems with their alternative source of getting the oil out, which is through um, trains. So I think, uh, you know, is climate change an ephemeral harder thing to conceive of? I'm not so sure because I was on the march uh, that had almost half a million people on it in New York. And so the idea that people in the United States don't care about climate change or don't believe in it or whatever, I mean, that's the biggest march against climate change uh, the world has seen to date. So um, I think that 2014 in many ways was uh, a watershed year, if you will, for um, a wider resistance and a more powerful resistance, a more resolute resistance to uh, the priorities of capitalism, one of which will uh, certainly result in extensive climate change. And, you know, we're just talking about that. And water, uh, that was one of the main motivations behind the anti-fracking movement, which after six years has successfully managed to force the Democratic governor of New York State here to ban fracking. So that's a huge victory with uh, repercussions all around the United States and across the world. Although Marx and Engels provide a thorough critique of capitalism, the route to solutions to capitalism's ongoing ecological crisis is not so easy to find, with neoliberals often giving the retort that as it stands, capitalism is the best solution we have. Gareth Dale was involved in the production of the booklet One Million Climate Change Jobs, which proposes a range of ideas on how the British economy could be restructured to both reduce our ecological impact and maintain jobs. The first goal was to um, 
to show how feasible uh, a radical decarbonisation of the economy would be with ideas how to do it um, uh, in terms of, for example, um, expansion of renewable energies, a shift from private vehicle transport to public transport, insulation of buildings and so on. And to do so at, a, um, at the level of the nation state, in this case, um, Britain. So, and the second goal was to, to argue and to show with examples and with figures and statistics to, sh to show that um, this can be done at the same time as making our own environment and our lives more comfortable and habitable. You know, um, uh, cutting down on coal-fired power stations in involves um, erecting wind turbines and t using tidal and wave energy and so on. It also involves insulating people's houses, which keeps them warmer. It's uh, uh, And getting people out of their cars and onto bicycles and into buses and trains and so on. Um, also makes our environment more pleasant and our lives healthier and in many ways one would assume happier and above all uh, we live in an age in which a lot of people have very um, precarious jobs or none at all um, there are a lot of people with a lot of skills imagination energy and the need to work um, transforming our economy in a um, environmentally friendly way in the, in the manner that is outlined in that booklet uh, would require a lot of people uh, doing quite a lot of work, but there is the demand for that and it would help to make people's lives more satisfying, particularly because it, they would find themselves involved in a project that would be, you know, improving the lives of pretty much everyone. This edition of Polygamy was presented and produced by me, Kieran Yates, and made possible by a grant from the Amiola Melbourne Trust. If you would like to explore this subject further, visit our website at www.podacademy.org. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.